Hello everyone, it's July 25th, 2023, so NASA made a list of winners for its CCSC2 initiative, the one where NASA shares expertise and data with commercial space organizations to help them win their goals. We're going to go through each one, all the pros, cons, pluses, and minuses, who had the best pitch, let's find out, and lift off! And we've got the tower. Welcome to episode 419 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. This time Dennis is out, so you guys are just <laughs> going back and forth. Yeah, man. You got a couple of flakes working with you on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> He's got cat dad responsibilities. Um, yeah. I, like, I don't know if you mentioned this last week, but I, I actually, like, went on a vacation last week, which is, like, awesome. I kind of thought that you had, you had said something about some familial obligations, which I guess the two go together. Um, and no, that you well, had like in-laws in or something like that, kind of. Well, Not I like mean, in-laws, yeah. but you know what I mean. Yeah, I've got family um, living in my house for the last like month. They're waiting to move into Philadelphia, which is going to happen at the end of the month. Um, but this this vacation was just for us. <laughs> uh, Corey's birthday is coming up, so we went out a little early. But I wanted I wanted to tell you about this place that I got to go to that I'm very excited about. So do you know what a Glen is? It's like a geographic, geologic, yeah. something feature, something to do with yeah. topology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a Scottish term. Um, so like the Scottish Highlands have a lot of like mountains and valleys. And so like they've got like five different names for different types of valleys, right? Mm-hmm. There's like, you know, a gorge is like the narrowest valley and a like a river valley is a valley with a river at the bottom and like all these different things, right? And so I went to Watkins Glen and a glen is a type of valley. And my understanding is that, you know, a glen is like kind of a narrowish valley, but like I think if we were going with the Scottish schema for naming uh, valley features. This would have been more of a gorge. So, uh, Watkins Glen is in Watkins Glen, New York. Um, it's at the south end of Seneca Lake. I would call it Lake Seneca, but you know, this is what they call it. So the, the finger lakes are like these weird, like stretch marks along the top of right, right through the middle of New York, I guess, uh, New York state. And so we were staying in Hammondsport, which is at the south end of Cuca Lake, um, which is like one lake over. And so we were like driving around and we had been told that like Watkins Glen was like this thing. And I was like, oh, cool. And I wound up looking it up and I was like, oh my God, I actually know Watkins Glen. And like, we have to go because like, it's really cool. And like, I, I know what this thing is. And so we wound up driving over, you know, one lake over, uh, it's like 20 minutes and uh, we went for a hike. So Watkins Glen is this really interesting feature. You, you I can't describe it well enough uh, to do it justice. You're just going to have to Google it. But the idea is that uh, North America and Africa, these continental plates, at one point were mushed together, right? And mm-hmm. um, one of the things about the East Coast of uh, the United States is there are all these like very crinkly mountains. Like it looks like, like a, a, a forehead when you raise your eyebrows. Right. And it's like totally the same mechanic. There's a fixed surface and you push the two edges of the surface together and it crinkles up to take up less space or, you know, less area. And so it extends into the, the third dimension. Like I said, most of the East Coast, it just forms these beautiful, crinkly, kind of swirly looking mountains. I live in the middle of them in Pennsylvania, um, but the Adirondacks extend pretty far south, uh, pretty far north. And um, 
Watkins Glen is this really bizarre result of the same, you know, continental shelves pushing against each other kind of phenomenon. Except uh, what happened at Watkins Glen is that there, there were these l- fractures that tore upwards through the strata of this like sedimentary uh, rock uh, formations. Some, at some places, really, really thin. It looks like, um, like laminated dough, like croissant dough or something. And the, these cracks formed, uh, perpendicular to the horizontal layers. And so the, the biggest one became the glen. So like this valley. But then while you're walking through, like you've got the walls of this like gorge that you're in, uh, that are like this, beautiful layered rock that's like a little crumbly. And then you have these vertical cracks that are perpendicular to the glen. Um, so it's like some, some of them are, are narrow, like chimneys. Like you could probably um, put your hands on either side and, and climb up it, um, bracing against either side. Um, but what's really cool is that Watkins Glen still has water running. Th- well, it has water running through it. Um, a lot of the like digging out uh, is erosion due to the water passing through. Some of it is erosion due to uh, glaciers um, that used to inhabit the area. Um, and it's actually pretty cool. There are places um, where you can see these wonderful waves in the rock that you're walking on. Uh, and those waves are, glacier erosion patterns. Um, but then you have the, this water erosion that happened. Um, there are a couple of tributaries that dump in and, and they form these beautiful, um, uh, waterfalls, but there are some places where the water gets so constricted, it forms waterfalls where like the water is like bouncing off of one side and slamming into the other side and forming these very just lovely, like serpentine, uh, river shapes, but on a relatively small scale, right? Like if you think of uh, a full river doing that serpentine here, you have the back and forth happening over tens of feet and it's hitting solid rock. And like, there are a couple of places where like a fair amount of water is moving through an area and it is streaming in one direction and then hits a wall and is deflected 90 degrees. I kid you not. Um, and you're like, well, how can this be running all day every day and it still hasn't broken through that rock yet the answer is like it it is moving like the rock is eroding away it's just doing so over time and so as uh as the water erodes downward it's changing its path like a like a river and you can see those paths in the erosion patterns it's just gorgeous i i want to go back yeah and if their tourism board doesn't hire you <laughs> they missed a trick <laughs> that was <laughs> that was very good um i'll probably have to edit that down but uh <laughs> oh yeah sure totally if if you have a vr headset um, mm-hmm. there's this photographer who does photogrammetry and he does a really, really good job. And, um, the reason I knew what this place was, was because I saw, he, he has an app that lets you experience a couple of locations that he's photogrammatized. Um, and so you can actually go stand. I think he did, um, rainbow falls is the one, uh, that he did. And that wasn't even my favorite, uh, 
uh, I thought Cavern Cascade was was really incredible. I've got some photos. I, I can upload them uh, to Discord. If you're listening to this later, good luck finding them. Uh, <laughs> just search for Watkins Glen. I think this will probably get you pretty close to uh, to the conversation point in Discord. So a commercial space station source selection. So Ben, you uh, created like, I'm not going to say an exhaustive list, but a really long list of all of the various space stations that are under consideration by NASA as part of the uh, commercial space station selection uh, act. I'm not sure what that's called. Uh, the CCSC uh, collaborations for commercial space capabilities, right? Commercial space capabilities. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, we've talked about this or we t- we talked about, you know, the need for NASA at some point in the future, sooner than later, I suppose, uh, to think about the next space station or what that's going to look like and what their involvement is going to be, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. But anyway, this is all about that. And so they're considering a lot of companies that, I mean, half of which at least I didn't know existed. So this is really interesting stuff. And uh, as you pointed out just before we started recording, there's at least one that's not even an aerospace company, I think. Well, it's, it's a nonprofit. I was going to say, it does have the word aerospace in the name, um, but it's a nonprofit. So yeah, this is a real, this is a very, it's just an interesting eclectic mix of various companies that have ideas for how to build a space station. Well, so here's the, here's the thing is like, it's not even that specific as to space station. Like it's definitely motivated by the end of the international space station, but this is really just like NASA saying, Hey, we want to see more commercial space. We want to see commercial partners doing more than just launch. Um, and like, Mm -hmm let's let's try and motivate some of that uh happening and so this is uh not a financial partnership this is like a knowledge partnership where nasa saying hey uh we have a bunch of knowledge um who wants some we're willing to invest in your company uh, in knowledge uh, rather than just uh, just money. That's a good... I mean, you pointed out an important thing that I kind of misrepresented there, which is that this is about space stations. It's not really. I mean, after all, this is a collaborations for commercial space capabilities, not space stations per se. Um, but yeah, it does seem to kind of focus on that. But there's uh, some interesting technologies. And I think that's kind of what this is about. This is more about what it takes to build a space station. And I think that that's what NASA is more interested in, if that makes sense, yeah. more so than necessarily a space station in like in itself but that's just kind of yeah. you know the angle that these companies take because i was looking at some of them and yeah i'm not sure how feasible some of these ideas are but there uh-huh. are aspects of it that are, <laughs> that are pretty interesting and i'm like well that's yeah. actually pretty cool they don't have to make a space station just do that one thing and you know yeah. you can play your part in a larger you know yeah, economy it's an here. ecosystem yeah yeah exactly. exactly yeah right right so ccsc2 specifically uh in their request for proposals here are the here are the things that they wanted to see from these proposals uh crude or uncrewed space destinations of any type so space stations uh transportation capabilities mostly that sounds like launch but i think also some on orbit transportation is probably uh probably would not have uh, had a shake a stick shaken at it <laughs> spacesuits slash personal spacecraft uh, capabilities for research manufacturing and assembly in space debris management uh, power stations propellant depots and servicing slash logistics what's really cool is 
if you uh, open this document and you jump down to page 16, uh, there'll be a link in the show notes to the, to the actual source selection document, but down at page 16, uh, Philip McAllister, the selection authority, like kind of describes in English, each of the different companies, uh, and their, um, their strengths and weaknesses and relevancies to this project. And I thought it was uh, actually something that I would have liked to have started with rather than um, the strengths and weaknesses breakdowns. But uh, uh, Philip also points out that uh, there were three cargo and crew transportation uh, proposals or proposals that included those things um, and eight proposals that included destinations uh, in space. And uh, Philip specifically talks about thinking about this selection as a portfolio, sort of like, hey, we have this opportunity to, as NASA, to like invest in commercial space. So let's invest in this diversified way. Um, Let's make sure that we don't you know, spend too much time thinking about launch and then not have any payloads. Let's make sure that we don't spend all of our time thinking about destinations and don't have any support hardware. Um, and the, the way that, uh, Philip McAllister talked about these things really like it felt good. It felt like a good insight into the way that NASA was kind of approaching this. Uh, also, before I get into any of the individual proposals, um, I want to point out that uh, this source selection had a thing I'd never really seen before, which was a color scale uh, that went from red all uh, on the low end to blue on the high end. And it's just five gradations, like very low, low, medium, high, very high. Um, but like they, they actually have a figure in the document that like has the colors, uh, these blocks of colors. I just thought it was kind of interesting because they never again mention color <laughs> in the document. They just kind of say high, uh, low, lowered, raised, you know, those kind of things. But it's, it's still, I thought it was fun. Okay. Um, so 12 proposals were submitted, uh, seven were actually selected. I thought we should just go through each of the seven. Um, each of these proposals was, uh, was ranked, uh, or analyzed, uh, based on its relevancy to the CCSC, uh, goals. Uh, it was analyzed on its, uh, business capability, like how confident NASA was that they, that the company could carry off the business side of their proposal, uh, how confident NASA was that they could carry off the technical side of their proposal. And in the, the technical competence section, they also looked at like whether this was like a good idea or not. So not just like, can you execute this thing? But like, is it worth executing? Um, some of that was in the business side, you know, like, is there a market for this? Some of that was in the technical side. Like, is this actually something that, that is technically uh, a good idea to go do or an interesting idea to go do? And then finally, they also, uh, looked at the feasibility of NASA actually being able to help these people. So each proposal included um, like a list of resources that they would like uh, to ask NASA for. Some people, uh, some some of the proposals uh, that didn't get uh, included had like super low feasibility or uh, completely infeasible resource requests. Like one, Ernst and Young, they asked for resources that NASA could not provide due to legal reasons. And so they got a 
generally infeasible rating uh, for that portion. Um, and most of the feasibility ratings are just moderate, which is to say there's no strengths, there's no weaknesses, it's just straight down the middle of the road. That's kind of where you start is is moderate or medium, and then you go up and down from there. Okay, so the, the first one will go in alphabetical order because that's the way that the document does. The first uh, proposal that was accepted uh, was Blue Origin. They were rated as highly relevant. And the proposal that they had was sort of like, here's all of the things that we do as Blue Origin. We would like access to NASA's lessons learned. So New Glenn, uh, their crude uh, vehicle that is like kind of unnamed. It's like a generic, I can't even remember. It's like a generic name with capital letters uh, at the beginning, uh, like transport vehicle, I think is something like that. Um, but also. Um, some of their space station concepts were kind of included. They, oddly enough, only got a medium uh, confidence rating for business. Uh, they uh, included a lack of cost data, and they didn't really flesh out their capability development plan. That's a theme you'll hear over and over. Um, they got a high ranking for technical confidence. Um, they didn't include cost data. They lacked uh, funding statements for some of their uh, capabilities in their initial submission, but they later revised it. This is a good place to talk about the revisal. They, in the source selection document, they call it due diligence, um, where they go, they went through every proposal and like just weeded out the ones that were totally not going to work. And then the ones that were like, yeah, this could work, but we're not sure. Um, they went back to the companies and kind of said, Hey, look, this is what your proposal was missing. Let's work together and, and find some answers. So in this case, um, blue origin initially didn't include cost data or funding statements for some of their uh, capabilities. And then after due diligence, they actually explained all of that. They're like, oh yeah, we just didn't put it in the paper. It was one of the things that um, I, th I think I could probably go consult on proposals uh, to NASA, uh, NASA's like RFPs, because like I've read enough of these source selection documents. And I'm like, did none of you, did nobody else read a source selection document before this, <laughs> before this proposal? Yeah. Yeah. That should be obvious, right? Yeah. It should be obvious. Like if you got NASA far, gives yeah. you a checklist, uh, Blue Origin was also uh, commended uh, for their reusable transportation elements like uh, New Glenn, and they were cited for weaknesses due to uh, insufficient information across the board, uh, like just literally like right across the board. And then, in the due diligence, I think they originally got a medium technical confidence and got bumped up to high because like this, this weakness of insufficient information across the board was just like totally cleared during the due diligence portion, which is like kind of cool. Uh, kind of sucks that, you know, Blue Origin didn't write all of that into the proposal to begin with, but you know, um, the, uh, one really big ding that they still had in the, on the technical side was they just didn't have a good plan for human rating, uh, their vehicles, um, and their, their crude orbital vehicle. And like, yeah, you know, that's, that's a tough part. So, okay, f fair enough. Um, Blue Origin received a moderately feasible rating. Uh, they just, they wanted to request things that were in some cases limited availability or had, you know, potential schedule conflicts. Um, the reason we can talk about schedule is because, uh, CCSC2 was, it, this is all intended for 
uh, capabilities that are going to be coming online in the next five to seven years. So like there are some things that NASA knows are not really going to be available in the next five to seven years. So that's how they can uh, talk about scheduling. The next one was Northrop Grumman. Uh, Northrop Grumman actually had some products that I hadn't heard of. Um, one of them is called uh, CDFF, uh, Commercial Destinations Free Flyer. Um, in this context, uh, free flyer just means space station, right? It's a thing that lives on its own and isn't intended to go visit somebody else or isn't intend intended to be like a package that is installed on somebody else's space station. It's just like a free flyer. And so they've got, uh, their CDFF and they also have, um, some sort of uncrewed companion station. I'm assuming this is like a fuel depot or something. The proposals were not included as part of the source selection, right? They're talking about the proposals. And so some of these things I can go look up on my own. Some of them I'm able to infer uh, through the source selection document. And uh, I'm assuming we're going to hear quite a lot about Northrop Grumman. I, I will include a link to their uh, to their like announcement that they were awarded this uh, CCSE2 award, uh, but they didn't, I couldn't really find any good info on their uh, companion station uh, for right now. Uh, right. So uh, Northrop Grumman was rated as highly relevant. Um, they got a high business confidence rating. The source selection document specifically said that like, yeah, they, there's a, a really strong market for the things that they want to sell. Um, but unfortunately, Northrop Grumman uh, doesn't have financing plans uh, past their first year of operation for some of this stuff. Um, they got a very high mark for technical confidence. Uh, NASA really liked that um, their space station uh, is like upgradable in the future. Uh, they have good plans for payload changeouts. Uh, they had just have like overall good planning. They've got good risk management. And of course, uh, Northrop Grumman has a lot of prior history to show that they can actually uh, operate in space and build and design things and send them to space. Uh, Northrop Grumman was given a moderate feasibility, again, due to uh, potential availabilities, uh, sorry, feasibility of NASA being able to actually help them uh, due to uh, availability concerns, but also some contract limitations. Apparently, they asked for things that uh, other contracts preclude NASA from telling them about. Uh, after them, uh, we have Sierra Space Corporation. They were rated as highly relevant. Um, they're uh, the, the big parts of their proposal had to do with uh, DC-200, uh, so Dream Chaser 200. I believe that's their crude variant, as well as LIFE, which stands for Large Integrated Flexible Environment. This is a space station that they are talking about as like a first step before they get to Orbital Reef. I guess this is like, you know, this, the single module version of Orbital Reef. Uh, so Sierra Space was given a high business confidence rating. Um, they've got a good financial position. They've got a strong management team. They've got a lot of knowledge about the market. Unfortunately, they didn't include uh, enough information on how they can like simultaneously manage all these different development paths that they're looking at. Um, I know I only really mentioned two, but they're like talking about using uh, both uh, DC 200 and the cargo version of dream chaser and doing the life station and doing orbital reef and like doing all these things at the same time and developing all of them at the same time. And it sounds like NASA's is not super, super confident. They'll be able to actually concurrently 
get all that done. They were given a very high technical confidence, which is pretty cool, um, based on a good utilization of existing space elements that they have designed. They have a good approach to um, enabling other applications using the technologies uh, that they proposed. They include some amount of reusability. I think that's uh, primarily Dream Chaser. However, they lacked details on their Eclis development. I love how I, I spelled Eclis with an I in the show notes. Uh, E-C-L-S-S. I always pronounce it Eclis. Is it Eclis? I oh, guess it doesn't matter. Sure. Really. Eclis works. Yeah, sure. It's life support. What does it stand for? Environmental control and life support systems. Yeah. And that's interesting because there's a mention of their confidence about the ecosystems of these various space habitats. And that's interesting to me because obviously that's a very important thing. And I feel like it's usually not mentioned. I don't know why. I mean, it might just be my imagination, but that's a big deal. And I'm kind of glad that they're mentioning that like, hey, you can build a structure, but can you keep people alive inside of it? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty important. So. And the thing is that they're not even looking at like, can you do this now? It's, do you have a plan to be able to do it in the future? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why it's not mentioned too much because like, if you can show that you have a plan to develop this system, great. If you can't show that you have a plan, it starts to become an issue. And uh, Sierra Space was also dinged for um, not having a super great plan on uh, human rating their systems. But they did get extra marks for um, doing a lot of work to to show that this is one of the things that came back uh, during the due diligence portion. But having multiple transportation options, um, meaning that they designed their vehicle to be able to fly on multiple uh, rockets, but also that they've started talking to launch partners and uh, they NASA really liked or felt really confident in their ability to actually fly whatever they want, uh, whatever they're able to design, they're going to be able to fly it because they've already done all this work. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to stop talking about the feasibility of providing, uh, assets from NASA. Cause I think every single one was moderate or medium. It's like right down the middle. No, uh, no advantages, no disadvantages. Almost everyone cited like, yeah, there may be, you know, some schedule conflicts, but like, eh, you know, strengths and weaknesses balance out. Then we have SpaceX. Uh, of course, they were given very high relevance. What's really interesting is like their proposal here is looking at Starship as a destination. Um, so not only uh, getting on a space uh, getting on a starship on the ground and flying to low earth orbit or the moon, but also like getting in a dragon on the ground and flying to a starship that's already on orbit and set up as a destination. And like that, it's, it's kind of weird. Cause like we've thought about that in terms of starship as a fuel depot, but I don't think we've heard very much other than like occasional, like, Hey, this might be cool say it once and then never talk about it again, kind of statements from Elon uh, about Starship as a human destination. Like, hey, we can set up Starship with, or we can fly a Starship with like all this um, space station kind of science equipment. We can fly it up there and then we can have people go up and come back down and like the spaceship or the Starship can just like stay on orbit and like be this destination. That's kind of a cool idea. I, I don't know if they're talking about putting multiple Starships together, but like, hey, if, you know, if your space station module can launch and then just like hang out and become part of a space station and then eventually deorbit and, you know, bring a whole chunk of the space station down, like that's actually, that's actually a pretty attractive proposal if it's, you mm -hmm. know, if it's actually doable, like. That seems very like 
what we imagine in sci-fi, right? Like just big old chunks of your space station going around and doing things. Yeah, that's a cool idea. I, and I don't know if we have mentioned it, but uh, I think I've thought about it for sure because it's it certainly is big enough it, it, and it needs all the things necessary to be a space station or a pseudo space station, I guess, yeah. you know, because I mean, staying on orbit is very different from just, you know, like launching and then coming back down or doing something else, but like, you know, actually having to live in low Earth orbit. But, um, but yeah, I mean, to me, that seems pretty feasible and yeah. uh synergistic or whatever <laughs> right 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 T yeah technically like it's it's super reasonable from other standpoints like i don't know i don't know if i want to be flying engines that are just gonna live on orbit forever you know i'm not sure i want to fly mm. something that you know i don't think they've really talked about uh like wet lab capabilities right where they can expand the habitable area into the fuel tanks like i don't, I don't know if that's something that has been mentioned like i think that would probably be required if you're going to do a whole ass space station but if you're just <laughs> doing like you know a, a single specialized starship uh for like manufacturing and like you need you know this one certain printer that takes up a lot of room yeah fly the printer up and then you fly people to it uh to work the printer and they come back and then eventually you bring that printer back down it's kind of like a a medium term uh, destination. I don't know. I think that could be pretty well. Cool. Like if you're launching a starship with the intention of making it a space station, you don't need those extra fuel tanks, really. I mean, I mean, you'd like you need some. I mean, it would and it would have to be custom designed, but that you know kind of goes without saying. Um, or a custom built space station variant, I guess you can call it. But it's not yeah. going to the moon. It's not going to Mars. I mean, I'm sure that there's things that can be changed and with yeah. how quickly SpaceX likes to iterate and mess around, I, it seems like, you know, now gaining the confidence of NASA, I guess that's what this is all about. Right. That's a whole other <laughs> ball of right. wax, you know? Yeah. So, but they damn sure will probably try, you know? Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think SpaceX is quite happy to throw Starship at anything yeah. uh, that they can throw it at. So, right. Uh, very high relevance, uh, very high business confidence and very high technical confidence. NASA particularly liked uh, the fact that SpaceX has uh, transportation, you know, launch, habitation, uh, Starship, I guess, and communication uh, capabilities. Uh, that's um, crap. What's their what's their communication constellation called? You mean Starlink? Starlink. Thank you. <laughs> Starlink. Um, and uh, like having all these things, all these assets already on orbit, like, you know, they are not super uh specifically designed for any of these like leo activities but they are generalized enough and they are plentiful enough um you know starlink in particular is like super plentiful but like starship like once these are up and running like i don't know how soon you know the first people are going to be flying on starship um i kind of am going to be surprised if it's in time for artemis but once starship is up and running it's probably going to go off like a shot just like Falcon 9, right? Like we can fly Falcon 9s all day, every day, and that's totally doable and reasonable. I think Starship's going to be kind of the same thing. And so just, you know, having the, the sheer quantity of, of habitable volume on orbit potentially or launch capability, it doesn't matter if things are super well suited to a particular task you can just throw a lot of material at the task mm -hmm. and that's uh that's kind of a cool way to to handle uh on orbit operations and i don't think that's a way that spacex or elon talk about doing business on orbit um they kind of act like they are super targeted and i i think 
their power might be that they aren't. Um, NASA also liked the reusability aspects of uh, Starship. Um, they like the technical maturation approach, which I believe is SpaceX saying, yeah, we'll blow things up uh, until we get it right. And then once we've blown up a bunch of things, then we'll give you the finished product. Uh, there's no quicker way to mature things than to break them. They got a ding for lack of uh, detail on Starship's capabilities. What a shock. Um, and they also got a ding for engendering not a lot of confidence in their ability to uh, field their stated capabilities in the next five to seven years, which again is the uh, sort of time regime that uh, CCSC2 was looking at. All right, we got three more. Uh, so next is uh, Special Aerospace Services. And David, I'll bet this is one of the companies that you never heard of. <laughs> yep. I'd never heard of it. Yep. So I kind of wonder if I actually sat in on one of their talks at IEC 2019. Uh, could have been a different company. I, I need to go look at a photo and I think I'll be able to remember. I think, I think it'll match in my head or not match. But anyway, they received a very high relevance, uh, for their concept of, uh, autonomous maneuvering unit, I think is what they're calling it, AMU. Initially, they said, okay, well, we're going to do an uncrewed demo version and then we're going to do a human rated version, uh, AMU HR. Um, and during the due diligence portion, I think NASA was like, hey, your uncrewed version is like really cool. We don't think you can human rate it as easily as you think you can. So like, maybe we, maybe we just talk about the uncrewed version and the company was like, Oh yeah. Okay, great. So we have this uncrewed version that we're really happy about. And it's not just a demo. Like, so anyway, um, the, I, this is like a personal spacecraft, right? This is, um, I think maneuvering unit is really a callback to, uh, MMU, the man maneuvering unit, uh, the, the jetpack that flew what, like three times, uh, Bruce McCandless's like iconic photo. And so like, this is like MMU, but like super beefed up, uh, more like a robot that you sit inside or a personal spacecraft than a, than a spacesuit. And so what NASA really loved about this was their their uncrewed version, uh, having, you know, sort of this robotic platform, um, that can go fly around. So not just, um, you know, Canadarm, which is connected to station and grabs things and moves them around and does things, but like a couple of smaller robot arms on a platform that can fly anywhere it wants, um, and do work in a, in a do robotic work in a very different way. I think I think it is a, a pretty cool idea and certainly highly relevant to CCSC's goals. They received a medium ranking for their business, uh, NASA's confidence in their in their business side. Um, they didn't describe the market for uh, AMU, uh, but did have a pretty reasonable financing plan to actually like achieve their goals, which is nice. They received very high technical confidence. I think they they started out at like high and then it bumped up to very high during the due diligence portion. Um, NASA really, really thought that this was a good concept. Uh, like more than anything, they're like, oh, this is a really good idea. Whether or not they're confident that it's actually going to happen, like they, they think they think the idea is is a is one that has to happen basically. Um, but unfortunately, uh, special aerospace services didn't provide enough details on some of the key features or the concept of operation. Um, but they did have a really good phase development, um, concept, uh, which I think is just, uh, the uncrewed demo and then the, the crude version, they got a commendation for their prior history in the industry. And like David, 
you and I both didn't recognize this name. Uh, maybe somebody might recognize SAS. Uh, that's what like their logo is SAS. And so like maybe that's uh, a little more familiar of a name. But they're just one of those teeny tiny companies that's like worked for other people and done engineering. And so like even though I couldn't tell you any of the specific things that they have designed or done engineering on. Um, but like, there's just one of those quiet companies that like just behind the scenes, just like cranks away and does good work and is known for doing good work. And so like, that's awesome. Okay. So we can move on to think orbital. Uh, I have heard of think orbital and I'm, I'm actually kind of shocked to see their name again. I kind of expected them to just disappear uh, into the ether like so many, so many little uh, startup companies in space. Um, but they were given a very high relevancy rating. The only thing is it's not clear if their technologies will be available in five to seven years. Um, but like during the due diligence portion, NASA felt more confident they would actually be able to get some things done in five to seven years, which is kind of cool. Um, but Think Orbital uh, is known for a technology called Contessa, which is an acronym 1S. It's an acronym for Construction Technologies for Space Applications, which is basically a method for building things in space. I'll talk more about it in a second. And then they're also n known for specifically they like submitted their proposal for um a product called think platform and so think platform uses the contessa method or the the contessa technology uh the idea is uh highly uh compact uh space station components are flown up and then assembled into much more voluminous big structures. And so they're doing um, uh, soccer balls, like the, the, that classic soccer ball shape, right? Um, where they're constructing uh, a sphere uh, out of panels that are like, they're curved to be fair. Uh, yeah, Chris in the chat says flat packed like Ikea. That's exactly right. Um, so they've got these panels. They're not flat panels. They are curved so that the final structure is kind of spherical, but they've got uh, hexagonal and uh, hexagons and pentagons and they tile them in. And so Contessa works by using a robotic arm uh, to start placing the, um, the hexagonal panels and they just they latch together um that's as strong as that link is to begin with right like not airtight um which makes sense cuz if you don't have the five sided shapes in there <laughs> you're not you got big holes in your sphere right so like first they just latch together um they latch for structural uh stability but also um they have uh power pass throughs which allows the robotic arm to walk up the inside of the sphere as it's building it from the bottom up and then it installs the five-sided panels um from the inside and they i don't know if they latch as well i'm assuming they do but once they're in place it welds everything together to form an airtight uh, volume. Uh, their welding uh, is electron beam technology, uh, which I don't, I don't know if it's been demonstrated on orbit. If so, it was probably a small demo on a, on a space shuttle mission at some point. But uh, yeah, so, so it's like this very like um, pie in the sky kind of idea. Like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll make flat pack, uh, giant space stations. Like everybody says that. 
but you know, it's hard to argue, uh, that it is very highly relevant, uh, to, to this, uh, you know, the support concept. Um, they got medium, uh, a medium business, uh, rating their management team <laughs> was specifically cited for appearing to have, uh, full-time jobs, uh, aside from think orbital. But then during the due diligence portion, they said that they were removing the management team weaknesses. Uh, so I don't know if that means that they don't have other full-time jobs or if they promise that they are very willing to uh, quit their full-time jobs. I'm not sure. Uh, but the other detractor that kept them in the middle category, like the default category, um, was that they weren't able to provide labor facilities as like what kind of uh, labor and facilities requirements they're going to have. And they also weren't able to come up with estimated costs for their work. Uh, they got a medium rating for technical confidence. So they were commended for addressing some of the risks that Contessa uh, shows, but then they were backwards commendated. <laughs> they, they were dinged for, um, having a, a super aggressive schedule, um, and also not having a lot of detail that they could provide on how they were going to develop the think platform, uh, concept. And, and what really makes think platform kind of nebulous at this point is it's not just one space station, right? It's not, we're going to develop the, these panels and we'll fly these panels as many times as we need and build a bunch of spheres. Um, they have a bunch of different think platform concepts. Um, some of them are pressurized. Some of them are unpressurized. Some of them are big. Some of them are huge. Um, some of them are, uh, built to, they're not self-sustaining, so they're built to be attached to other space stations, other commercial space stations. Some of them are free flyers where they've got a bunch of other modules that they're going to like bring up or purchase and build their own space station. It's just, it, they're very all over the map, at least on their website. And like, I, I think I can't say anything to, to better express NASA's sentiment uh, than to read a quote from Philip McAllister. Um, he said, uh, while I'm not convinced that Think Orbital is at this point a realistic option as a commercial destination provider, I believe it can achieve significant progress on its Contessa concept with the support NASA can provide through the CCSC2 Space Act Agreement. And like, I, I love this. Like, eh, we're not sure, but like, Hey, at least we can help them get better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And I, I think it's a cool concept too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally agree with that. Yeah. Like maybe it's a little early. Maybe the concept's a little ahead of its time, but like, Hey, we're never going to get there if we don't try and mature some early mm -hmm. concepts. Right. Uh, okay. Last, uh, we have vast, um, we've talked about vast, um, Right. Yeah, but only like honestly, kind of we we've only mentioned them kind of derisively because <laughs> I mean I, yeah. I think this is a company that wants to build like O'Neill cylinders and yep. stuff like that. Yep. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah, that's them. And so like, if I was surprised um, to see Think Orbital show up, I was really surprised to see Vast show up. I'm not at all shocked that they submitted a proposal. I am shocked that they were selected, and like. This is the first time we've actually gotten to see NASA interact with VAST, right? Because of this due diligence process, they, they went back and kind of gave the VAST the side eye, or at least, you know, they started out 
uh, looking at their proposal and giving Vass a side eye. And then they went and gave them the dead straight on eye and said, hey, guys, we got some questions and you got some splaining. And so uh, they were given a very highly relevant rating. Of course, um, they were given high business confidence, uh, which is really cool. This was upgraded during due diligence. They were uh, commended for strong development and financing plans. Uh for having a subscale demo module. Unfortunately, no plans on how to uh, accommodate the resources that are, you know, they're kind of just looking at, here's what we're going to need to build the full thing. Oh, but we're also going to do this demo and we're not going to talk about how we're going to pay for it. The initial proposal had a lack of detail on the management teams, but during the due diligence process, um, they said, oh, okay, we got more information on who the management team is, <laughs> but we're going to add a new weakness uh, because the management team uh, lacks relevant experience, uh, which really sucks. Like, I wonder, I don't think that they were necessarily trying to hide it. It just kind of comes off as like, not great. Like, Hey, uh, you didn't do this part of the exam. Oh yeah. That's because I'm really bad at that part of the exam and I don't know the answers. They were given a medium technical confidence. Um, if they had a lower, very low technical rating, uh, they wouldn't have been selected, I believe. Uh, but you know, they, they went right down the middle. And so they had strength, uh, found in some of their key features, including spin, right? Uh, artificial gravity. If you can do it, that's a good thing to have on orbit. That's something we don't have, something mm -hmm. we don't really have any plans to develop. So like, if you say you're going to develop it, just the fact that you're thinking about it is a strength. Unfortunately, they then had a lot of that strength taken back away in the weakness of just not having any real details on their design concepts or their concept of operations. Um, they also inadequately were able to describe how they were going to develop uh, the ability to do spin gravity in the initial report. Actually, let me, let me, <laughs> Let me just read this other quote from McAllister. Uh, he said, also, I was unsure about the feasibility of the artificial gravity capability, particularly in its impact on crew health, which I think means spinning people so fast that they vomit. But then he continues, uh, as part of its due diligence, the PEP, which is the preliminary board that examine these. Uh, the PEP discussed the technology with a guidance navigation and control expert who stated that the concept was not infeasible. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a plus. <laughs> Can you impossible. ask for a better quote? <laughs> yeah. And like, that's uh, it makes me so happy that a GNC expert, uh, basically I'm sure that this GNC expert had much more to say than this one tiny mm. boiled down right but like basically the gnc expert says exactly what i said which is like well yeah it's not impossible <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness um but yeah you know like hey any skepticism i have about vast and um their o'neill cylinder concepts at least nasa is gonna be providing them with some feedback and some information and some lessons learned and like help keep their feet on the ground until they're ready to fly. You know, like mm -hmm. I, I don't think there's anybody who I wouldn't want to benefit. I mean, there are some people who are just, you know, so way out there um, that NASA shouldn't be spending time on them. Uh, like, uh, UFO conspiracy theorists, you know, like just, <laughs> yeah. nah, we're, we're not gonna, we're not even gonna, uh, 
go there. We're not going to waste the time. But like even somebody who like we kind of deride like vast um, or somebody who I didn't really have a lot of confidence in, like think orbital, like at least their concepts are are good, maybe ahead of their time, but like at least their concepts are good. And like they have a business plan and like they have the, the bones that are there that make it sound really good that NASA is actually going to sit down and spend some time with them and, and help them. Like I am not walking away super confident, but I'm more confident than if NASA wasn't helping them. And I know that any work that they do is a good thing, right? Like if they can learn a lesson that keeps somebody else from having to learn that lesson, that's great. And it doesn't really matter if the you know, these particular LLCs or incorporated, whatever, like if these exact organizations don't make it, that's not that big of a deal if they're contributing to human knowledge. And, you know, maybe they will go off and do amazing things that we didn't expect them to do. And that would be even better. So let's just do two short and sweets this week. Ben, what's the first? Yep. Uh, Recently arrived geosatellites are in trouble. Satellite operator Astranus's 350-kilogram Arctura spacecraft was recently launched to GEO on a Falcon Heavy, along with Viasat-3 Americas. The satellite is notable for its small mass, almost an order of magnitude less than typical GEO satellites, and was designed to provide continuous broadband over Alaska. However, both of Arcturus's solar array drive assemblies have failed, so that the spacecraft can no longer keep its arrays pointed at the sun. The company's CEO said the vehicle could still be used as an on-orbit testbed or perform an alternative mission. Viasat 3 Americas, meanwhile, has been unable to deploy its main antenna, potentially leading to a 420 million US dollar insurance claim, the largest ever for the loss of a satellite. Next up, China develops plans to land humans on moon before the decade's end. At a recent aerospace conference in Wuhan, China presented a preliminary plan for crew landings on the moon by 2030. These would involve separate crewed and lander segments launched on a pair of Long March 10 rockets and short lunar excursions by a two-person crew once the surface is reached. Spacesuits are currently being developed for lunar surface operations and a lunar rover with a range of 10 kilometers is also part of the mission profile. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. And we have a good correction from AC Saudi uh, via the Orbital Podcast Discord. So, um, yeah, this was about last week's discussion that Dennis and I had about fixing those Centaur tanks. And I think we were both kind of speculating as to why we couldn't quite figure out why it would require a certain amount of weight in order to repair these tanks and then it could be cut in half. And really, it's just because in my mind, the way that I read it, I thought that they were talking about the repairs being made to the currently existing tanks that have already been built. But actually, uh, the difference is a little bit simpler than that. It's that they're going to manufacture them with those design improvements so that you don't need to, you know, put a giant patch over it. So yeah, I don't know why that didn't occur to me. That's kind of one of those little obvious things. So moving along then to this week in spaceflight history. So we have three winners. We have uh, the Greek, Cy Kyle, and Uncle Willie. They all get bonus points. They guessed the event, and the clue was he was born in Belgium and then again in Italy. So uh, that's the clue. The event was 
Uh, on the 29th of July, 2014, it was the launch of ATV5, which was uh, named George Lemaitre. So now I think the clue is pretty self-explanatory. So George Lemaitre was a, I guess, a priest slash physicist, right? Wasn't he <laughs> uh, a man of the cloth? I can't, I cannot remember, but um, he's known as the father of the Big Bang. Uh, he's the one who first put that theory forward. Yeah, he was born in Belgium. And then uh, the ATV5, his namesake, was built mostly in Italy. Um, as I think one of the guests just pointed out, uh, the whole thing isn't necessarily built there. But yeah, so pretty easy clue. And uh, the ATV5... George Lemaitre, this was actually the last of the five that was ever built and flown. Um, and actually, you know, I, I never kept track of how many there were, and I didn't realize that there were so few. I thought that there was like 10 or something, like that there was just more than that. Uh, but there was only five of them. It was launched from Kourou on an Arian 5 ES, and uh, the ES variant is, that's the one that uses the EPS restartable upper stage, and this is because you have to be able to relight that second stage in order to fly in ATV. So they all had that particular type of an upper stage. Uh, we talked a lot about Arian 5 last week or the week before that. Um, it's been in the news a lot, but uh, yeah, that's that particular variant. So I guess let's talk about the vehicle itself. I didn't go into too much detail since I know we've talked about these million times before, and I did kind of want to focus on this particular mission. Um, but the total cargo mass of this particular flight was 6,607 kilograms, and the total mission propellant was 4,356, and the amount that was used or that was reserved for raising the orbit of station was 2,118 kilograms. And then there was a certain amount that was um, used to uh, refill Zvezda, and that is 860 kilograms. And then there was one O2 tank and two quote-unquote air tanks on board. And this is what I read. I didn't find any more elaboration of what that meant. I don't know if this is just like a complete mixture of nitrogen and oxygen and maybe trace amounts of other stuff. I don't know. I would imagine not the trace amounts, but um, I don't know what air tank means because I don't know why you'd be transporting like regular air to station. So I'm a little confused by that. Um, why not just transport O2? At any rate, there was 100 kilograms of that that was brought on board and then, you know, transferred to station. Uh, the total mass of the pressurized cargo was 2,683 kilograms, and it had its first full load of potable water. Uh, so um, I guess all previous missions didn't bring the maximum amount that they could, uh, but this one did, which was 843 kilograms. So that just gives you an idea of how much this can transport. So 6,607 kilograms total. That's a lot. So one experiment that I had on board was called LIRIS, which is the Laser Infrared Imaging Sensors, um, and this was just a technology demonstrator. So this is for non-cooperative proximity operations, and I think that we maybe we've either talked about this before or we've talked about a system that pretty much does the exact same thing. Um, I even looked at some of the photos of uh, what uh, the station looks like on approach from the point of view of the LiDAR sensors and so forth, and it looks just like you know what we've seen before. I don't know if it was maybe like an HTV, perhaps. I think that might have been it. Or maybe it was a Dragon cargo resupply. But we've discussed how when making an approach to station, well, you first come in on relative navigation, essentially. And then once you're closer, uh, you switch to a different system, the Lyris system. Now, that was not actually used on this mission. It was just there to collect data and to, you know, put it through its paces. But uh, this is not what was actually used for docking um, because all that information was just um, uh, recorded and stored on board for later analysis. So the way the system works is you have two sensors, essentially. Uh, you have an infrared and visible light sensor, or two of those. Um, and these operate from about 30 kilometers through docking. And then you have a LiDAR sensor, and that kind of comes into play during the 
the final stretch, which is about 3.5 kilometers uh, through docking. So, okay, so one cool thing about ATV-5 was a couple of debris avoidance maneuvers that it had to make. So on October 27th, so we're kind of, you know, jumping forward by several months, it had to perform the first ever ATV-powered PDAM, which is a predetermined debris avoidance maneuver. The ATV docks to the, the aft end of the station. So if you imagine it being in that location, you can see how you could use it to do a prograde burn. Um, and indeed, it was already scheduled to do a prograde burn in order to raise the station's orbit. And then I think later on to actually lower the orbit um, for, I believe, an upcoming Soyuz. But in this instance, on October 27th, um, it had to do a prograde burn of about 0.5 meters per second in order to avoid debris from Cosmos 2251. So we've talked about that before. It's littering low Earth orbit. And the object was cataloged to be around the size of a hand, it said. So I guess it is kind of those dimensions, because if I make my hand into a fist, I would just say baseball. But I'm guessing it was something more flat and sheet-like. It was predicted to pass within four kilometers of station, so that's too close. So they had to do the prograde burn and do that debris avoidance maneuver. And it was hoped that earlier that morning that the undocking of a Progress 51P, that that itself would have been enough to actually change the orbit. And I'm not sure how, I guess, because it maybe has to, you know, give a little push off of the station, but I don't see how that could change the orbit of the station that much. And I don't know, if Ben, if you have any idea why that would be, that how an undocking could actually make that kind of a change to the ISS orbit i mean it's, it's interesting because like m yeah my assumption is that it's the the springs pushing the two apart and like you would expect to have that docking and undocking uh but i never thought about it as maybe being enough like if they're doing half a meter per second like that's that's a lot of delta v for <laughs> for iss right um yeah and docking and undocking i wouldn't expect it to get anywhere near that order of magnitude so i don't mm -hmm. know well, I, I guess it was never going to, and they knew that, but they were just hoping that however much it did change the orbit, that, you know, that would have been enough. And I yeah, guess it wasn't, yeah. but I just figured it could be more than uh, like one millimeter or something. <laughs> I mean, just yeah. like it can't be much, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, ha yeah, half a meter per second. Yeah. I don't know. It's a, it's a lot, but I mean, maybe there is some extra, like maybe they didn't suck all the air out of the vestibule and like so there was some some air like some gas propulsion i don't know speaking of gas uh the air tanks mm -hmm. um so i believe it was actually one tank of air uh 33.33 kilograms and two uh oxygen tanks 66.666 kilograms and i think you said one tank of oxygen two tanks of air but it's it's all for human consumption so the oxygen is added into the into the atmosphere as it gets breathed out and the air is just pressurant because like when you have leaks you're going to wind up with nitrogen escaping as well as the oxygen so i don't think that the t air tank was just nitrogen i think it was probably atmospheric okay 12 uh, oxygen or whatever it is um, and they just add, you know, have it around so they can um, keep the pressure up without having to do a whole a whole mix. Okay, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, because you would need some amount of nitrogen. I, I just would have figured they would store that separately. Huh, interesting. Okay, so yeah, there was that orbital raising maneuver. And then there was a second one that was needed just a few weeks later. Um, and this one happened in November. And it, uh, this was necessary to avoid a Yaogan 12 spy satellite lens cap, they think. Uh, that's an interesting uh, debris avoidance maneuver. I guess it's not confirmed that this was a lens cap, but it's widely believed that that's probably what this was because... Yeah. Uh, 
you know, this was a spy satellite. And I guess the object did look enough like one as best as I could tell. It reminds me of uh, Heavenly Bodies. Uh, it's a video game that's like very kind of goofy, but it's set on a space station. And at one point you assemble a uh, a satellite with a camera and like you have to take the lens cap off. It's just like this lens cap that like goes floating off into space. <laughs> Well, I guess that's what they did with this one. They just kind of jettisoned it. But uh, this particular debris avoidance maneuver was kind of killing two birds with one stone because uh, they did need to boost the station anyway. And they were going to do that, you know, I guess within a couple of days or so. So uh, this basically was the station boost that just, you know, like put them outside of uh, the hazard zone of, you know, possibly colliding with that lens cap. So, yeah. So that was kind of cool. Uh, kind of worked out. And then also I want to talk about the shallow reentry that wasn't. So one cool, interesting, really cool thing about this last mission was that NASA requested from the ATV control center that they actually perform a very specific type of shallow reentry. Um, and this is in order to characterize the ISS end of life fragmentation during its deorbit. So basically they wanted mm -hmm. to recreate what it would be like if the ISS were deorbiting with uh, the ATV-5. It's a pretty cool idea. Um, and, and I don't know how, I mean, I guess there's all kinds of things you can learn, but uh, the ISS and uh, this little ATV are two very different things in so many ways. But I guess, you know, there's some useful science that you can get from that if you make the reentry profile as similar as possible. So um, what this meant was, well, and I guess I should go back and point out that I said that this is a shallow reentry that wasn't. So this ended up uh, not happening, and I'll explain why. Um, but I did kind of want to talk about exactly what it would be like, because it's kind of cool. There were some requirements that NASA had. These are not all of them. There was like, I don't know, like over a dozen. Uh, but some of the highlights are, or some of the important points is that um, normally when you do orbit an ATV, and I don't know why they do this. There's actually a 10 degree pitch per second tumble that they put the thing into. Um, and I guess that's maybe just to help it break up. And uh, I mean, I don't really know. Um, there might be some other science that they're doing because I do know that they monitor these things on their reentry. Um, I think that they're always taking metrics uh, as far as, you know, temperature and so on and so forth. But they intentionally put it into a tumble. Uh, but in this case, they weren't going to do that. They were going to keep it in a earth facing direction. And I didn't know what end was facing earth. I I guess the hatch. Yeah. I don't know uh, what that means with respect to a capsule, but yeah, okay. But more importantly, they wanted to get these solar panels in a knife position, which just means that it's kind of cutting through the atmosphere. Um, and this is in order to reduce the aerodynamic force perturbation. So you don't want any forces acting upon uh, the vessel itself that I guess might confound the data that they're collecting. And I suppose the force created by the solar panels interacting with the atmosphere would kind of mess that up. So they put those panels into that particular orientation uh, to keep it edge on with the atmosphere. The final orbit that they needed the ATV to be in before it actually did its deorbit burn would have to be 190 by 215 kilometers. So I guess that's similar to what the ISS would be orbiting at before it you know, began its final reentry. And the longitude of the ascending node of the reentry would have to be within 44 and 57.29 degrees. Um, and that's west longitude. And that's in order for Australia and New Zealand ground systems to, you know, make observations. It also had to be visible from station as well. So the station had to be overhead. So that's a whole phasing thing that they have to do. And it has to be over this particular longitude. And I believe it has to be during uh, either daylight or night. I'm not sure which is better in this case. I guess daylight. I'm not sure. But there are all these requirements that they 
have to hit. And there has to be no more than 774 kilograms of propellant after the final deorbit burn. And uh, that's because there were fears that um, it could explode and, you know, be a hazard to anyone on the ground, um, even though it's obviously deorbiting over the ocean. But they wanted to minimize that. This actually was a little bit of an issue because um, the initial docking with station was actually so good that they had extra fuel despite the debris avoidance maneuvers. Uh, but the plan was just to put the ATV into a parking orbit and then burn that fuel. So what happened was four days prior to that on February the 10th, there was one of four power chains that were lost. And this apparently just means like one of four batteries. So there was a battery that could no longer connect to uh, the PCDU, which is the power control and distribution unit. And they think that it's possibly because of a blown fuse. Um, I didn't get any confirmation on that, but that's most likely what the problem was. But um, this is not a problem for the ATV so long as it's not doing this particular maneuver. Um, and so long as it's docked with station, there's no issues because it can just run on station power. And if it has to run on three batteries, the only problem is that there are certain subsystem redundancies that are switched off, but they're not necessary. However, uh, in order to do this particular maneuver, apparently they are necessary. Uh, they couldn't do without them. So there were fears that during orbital night, these systems you know, would have to shut down. So anyway, the upshot is that ESA uh, they opted to just do a normal steep re-entry. Um, I don't know like when I say steep, how steep, but it's obviously not the shallow re-entry of a deorbiting space station. Uh, that's the key difference. But that was un unfortunate that they never got to do that uh particular shallow reentry because I would like to know, you know, what that's like. And I don't know if um, any eight or not ATVs, but I don't know if any spacecraft since then have done a similar reentry, possibly. They certainly have on, the opportunity. Purpose, right? I mean, you would think that they would do a couple of those on purpose uh, since, you know, uh, they can gather some good data, like maybe use an HTV or some other resupply vehicle and see what happens when you deal with it in just that way. So steep is actually really steep. Um, they burn to bring their perigee down to zero kilometers. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That'll totally bring it home. That'll do it. <laughs> You're not making one more orbit after that. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, that is ATV-5 Georges Lemaitre, uh, the very last of the ATVs and um, hopefully not the last of something similar because I actually really think that these are cool. And this is something that, you know, like Dennis really likes. And unfortunately, he's not here to discuss yeah. it. He'd probably have a whole lot more to say. Um, he likes uh, he likes it, the ATVs. Just doing some like quick Googling while you were talking. They also had a, a breakup camera installed and uh, Isa has like one photo that I could find that that's basically like a wall inside the vehicle lit up by, you know, re-entry heat coming through the window. I'm like, come on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the breakup camera, they only got one message out and it wasn't clear why they didn't get more. But um, apparently they, the camera successfully took 6,000 images, but was unable to transmit them out. And nobody knows why um, they were talking to an Iridium satellite. So it, it may have been an issue with uh with iridium actually passing it on but yeah thanks for catching that i forgot to mention that too i had uh read that and totally breezed right by it yeah they took all those photos and uh yeah something went wrong there but otherwise a successful mission i feel like we could go on and on it's kind of an unexpectedly rich mission to talk about mm -hmm. um, yeah so i wouldn't feel bad about not having been able to cover everything well thank you david like i said this is just like a surprisingly deep place to to mine for fun little details so that yeah. was cool next week is the first through the 7th of august and i'm actually going to be doing that one um and i have a clue so next week in 2011 the clue is dim sun and i have to give credit 
to Dennis for this clue because it's a very good clue. So if you have a guess as to what this clue is in reference to, you can email us at info at the orbitalmechanics.com, or you can shoot us a toot on Mastodon, use the hashtag thisweeksf, or you can visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash discord to join our discord, uh, use the slash command TWSF, so type slash TWSF, and hand your guess directly to Tombot, our very helpful uh show helping robot and good luck and good luck everybody so uh, let's uh transition then on over to upcoming spaceflight events we have five launches and i guess maybe one other spacewalk as well but what's the first launch so first up is a falcon heavy flying echo star 24 also known as jupiter 3 um, that is a geostationary communication satellite um, built by echo star and maxar technologies uh, built by Maxar for EchoStar, and it's a it's a broadband satellite, uh, adding to the uh, America's coverage. So again, Falcon Heavy launch. Don't get too many of those. Um, this is going to be flying. We're, we're not a hundred percent sure because we're the source is like a tourism. It's launchphotography.com, so they have like kind of a touristy like, hey, this is when you can go see a launch. Um, and they tend to be accurate, but we're not 100% sure. And so we don't know if this is the actual launch window or not. Um, but the times that we have right now are Thursday, July 27th, between 0204 hours UTC and 0512 hours UTC. And then after that, the following day, we have the launch of an Electron, and that is with the mission titled We Love the Nightlife. Um, and this is launching Capella Acadia 1. So this is a single synthetic aperture radar earth imaging satellite uh, manufactured and operated by Capella Space. And this is lifting off, we think, at some time on the 28th. Um, but there's actually no exact uh, liftoff time provided um, aside from 2400 UTC, which it's probably that's probably not when it's lifting off. Uh, they tweeted and said, uh, hey, this is scheduled for July 28th. And like, that's yeah. all we know. Yeah. <laughs> so the launch site will be from Ununui Station, uh, and that's on the Mahia Peninsula in New Zealand from Rocket Lab Launch Complex 1A. So uh, always a beautiful launch from there, and it's going to low Earth orbit. So, yep, check that out at whatever time it ends up launching on the 28th, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, follow them on Twitter or something. All right. So after that, we have Starlink Group 6-7 that's launching on a Falcon 9 Block 5, and that's flying on Friday, July 28th between uh, 09 hours UTC uh, and 0712 hours UTC. Oh, not 0900 hours. 0, 00100 hours, <sighs> nine minutes. <laughs> 0, 009, nine minutes into the 28. <laughs> so th this one's fun. Uh, it is also launching out of the Cape, just like the Falcon Heavy. So these guys would be you know, two launches uh, out of basically adjacent pads within 24 yeah. hours. Uh, pretty cool. And then after that, on the 30th, uh, we have the launch of DSR. Um, and I think maybe this is one that we mentioned last week. And so it got rescheduled because I do remember talking about 
this particular launch. Um, this is a PSLV in the CA configuration, which means that it's, I believe, just the core, so no side boosters. This is another Earth observation satellite built by Israel Aerospace Industries to be used by both the Singaporean government, DSTA, which is a defense and science technology agency, and commercially operated by um, ST Electronics. Yeah, so that's a bunch of companies there. So this is launching at 0-100 hours in 15 minutes UTC through uh, 0415 UTC from the Satish Dawan Space Center from the first launch pad. All right, last launch, not the last event. Cygnus CRS-2 NG-19. Uh, so this is the 19th uh, Cygnus flying under the CRS-2 contract. It is a cargo vehicle going to the International Space Station. Um, is launching out of Wallops uh, on an Antares tw- uh, 230 Plus. And like, I need to go look at the visibility because like, maybe I'll get to see this one <laughs> uh, from mm-hmm. uh, Pennsylvania. Sometimes I can see them. Sometimes in theory, I could see them. I have not yet been able to. <laughs> Uh, this is going to be launching on Wednesday, August 2nd at uh, 0.31 hours UTC. Uh, you'll be able to watch the uh, rendezvous and docking or uh, rendezvous and berthing on NASA TV. Coverage for the rendezvous and capture begins at 4.30 a.m. on Friday, August 4th uh, Eastern Time. Capture is scheduled for uh, 5.55 a.m. Eastern. The coverage is going to start at 7.30 a.m. Eastern time, and they don't have an actual installation uh, scheduled time. So I guess you just start watching and you see it installed when it's installed. And a NASA TV schedule is nice enough to point out that it's getting birth to the nadir port of the Unity module. All right. And then after that, finally, on August 9th, we have a spacewalk. This is a Russian spacewalk on the ISS. It will be covered on NASA TV, and the spacewalk is scheduled to begin at 10.45 a.m. The coverage actually begins at 10.15 a.m. So, um, and of course, this is all Eastern time. So 10.15 in the morning, uh, then half hour later, the actual spacewalk begins and it's scheduled to last six hours and 30 minutes. And I don't know what they're doing, actually. Nope, no clue. All right, those are your upcoming space flight events. All right, and so with that, time to deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. And we record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific and 12 p.m. Eastern. And thank you so much to Mike, Colin, Chris S., The Greek, Psy, Kyle, Ryan R., Delta V, James Sutherland, Aru Aru, and Kalin and JP for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burnt on the fly. If you want to support the show, please tell a friend, or better yet, leave us review wherever you listen you can visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our patreon campaign and affiliate links and get in touch find links to our mailing list discord server and mastodon account at the orbitalmechanics.com slash about or you can skip all that by emailing info at the orbitalmechanics.com all right so that's it we'll see you all next week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody